0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. On September 8, 1985, 36-year-old Anna Mendieta fell 34 stories to her death from her Manhattan apartment building, Anna was an up-and-coming artist just making a splash in the world of modern performance art. Her husband, Carl Andre, was an already famous and celebrated sculptor who expressed jealousy at the attention his younger wife was receiving. Did competition and jealousy spill over into homicide? Or was Anna Mendieta's death as a result of suicide, as Andre claimed? In this episode, you'll learn more about the story from Helen Molesworth, author, art curator, and host of the new podcast, Death of an Artist, a podcast series that features never before heard archival audio and interviews with close friends of Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre, as Molesworth pieces together the puzzle of the artists, their relationship, and the tragic ending of Mendieta's life. I'm joined in conversation in this episode by Helen and her producer, Louisa Tucker. Death of an Artist is a co-production from Pushkin Industries, Something Else podcast studios, and Sony Music Entertainment. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts or binge the entire series when you become a Pushkin Plus subscriber in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm plus. of course, listeners to Once Upon a Crime are interested in the true crime story contained in this podcast series, Death of an Artist. But many of my listeners, like me, are also art history buffs because I've covered cases related to artists like including Van Gogh and Caravaggio, Andy Warhol, and also a few art museum heists. So I know they're really interested in this topic. But this is very different. I found myself really thinking about a lot of different ways that this story could go and and what you could have focused on. But I'll kind of talk about that more at the end. But first, Helen, I wanted to talk about the art world and what was happening during the time Anda Mendieta was gaining acclaim as an artist uh, and recognition. And I'm particularly interested in the type of art she was creating and also what it was like for her as a female artist at that time. And I guess to kind of Set the stage a little bit and let people know a little bit about you, your background, and then maybe talk a little bit about the art world at that time.
0: Thank you, Esther. I am an art historian, a writer, a critic. For almost two decades, I was also a curator at a variety of museums across the country. I've always loved art. It always tickled my funny bone as a kid. And as an adult, it was a place where. I found that a lot of the world's big philosophical or existential issues could be dealt with, for me personally, through the portal of art most effectively. One of the reasons I've been so interested in contemporary art in particular, and perhaps in the work of Carl Andre and Anna Mendieta in specific, So, to answer your question about what it would have been like to make art or to be an artist in 1980s New York, well, first of it, it would have been really small. The art world then was pretty tiny, and the white professional art world was even smaller than you know a big group of people who might consider themselves artists. Carl Andre was very much you know a a major major player in the downtown New York scene of the nineteen seventies and eighties, but like every other cultural formation in the late 70s and 80s, the art world was profoundly rocked by the advent of feminism and the advent of what we used to call back in the day, identity politics. So basically people who were bringing their identity as women, as people of color, as immigrants, as gay people, bringing these identities fully into their work and into the discussion of their work. And that had not really been the case up until the 70s and 80s. So Mendieta arrives kind of just in time for her work to find a place where it could take off because her work was so invested in her personal history. She was forced to immigrate from her native country of Cuba as a child. She was a a small woman but filled with an incredible kind of intellectual and physical energy she was really interested in power and the difference in who gets to have power and how that power is enacted whether it's power over another body power over the land and i think she was also someone really curious about what did it mean to be a woman? What did it mean to be a Cuban woman? What did it mean to be a Cuban exile woman? How was she going to process all of those ideas and feelings in her work?
1: I was really fascinated by her story. Um, And there was so much there that I thought, yeah, it really lends to just overall who she was as a person, how she kind of thought of art and made art. That's one of the things I think that especially me and my listeners are really interested in, is kind of the the backstory of the artists who make the art. We'll talk about that, too, because this is a big theme in the podcast, is can you separate the artist from the art? And that's a really big question, and especially with this case. Obviously, she's very tied to Carl Andre, who was another artist who was very renowned at that time, Tell us a little bit how you came interested in the story of Anna's life and death and her connection with Carl Andre. Did it start with him as the artist and then learning about um, Anna, or was it the other way around?
0: Well, I'm of the generation where I learned about Carl Andre way before I learned about Anna Mendieta. And I learned that Carl Andre is a genius and a very important person, and I learned that the history of sculpture cannot be told without him. you know. So for someone of my generation, Carl Andre is already firmly in place by the time I enter into the art world. And Anna Mendieta is very much not. While I sort of know who she is, maybe a little bit in grad school, I honestly don't take the work very seriously. And that's something that I'm really embarrassed about. Uh, in retrospect. But I think it's important to show how taste changes over time. And at the time, the taste was for minimalism. The taste was not necessarily for this radical woman engaging in experimental earth art and talking about earth goddesses and mother nature and all that kind of stuff I was kind of allergic to. I was a young, you know, punk hip hop person. Like I wasn't interested in touchy feely feminism. I was interested in, you know, hard boiled philosophical theory. And Ana Mendieta's work struck me as a little embarrassing. However, then I grew older and less embarrassed about things and more curious about things. And I think also as you grow older, as a woman, especially as you grow older in the workforce as a woman, your youthful ideas about how maybe you don't need feminism because you're equal to men start to erode because you enter a workforce in which you're very much not equal to men. And you begin to understand how power works and you begin to see men get things that women don't get. And you begin to see all of that as an adult. And then feminist art became very interesting to me. And Mendieta's brand of feminism became more and more available to me. I was able to see it more and understand the incredible depth of her contribution.
1: And that's one of those things, right, is you kind of have to evolve, you know, with what's happening at the time. And also somebody like Anna, like she really made these inroads where there wasn't something like what she was doing before. So how do you How do you find a point of reference to appreciate it, telling something in a a new way? I also wanted to know, like, when did you decide to research this subject in depth? And also because I'm a podcaster, how did you decide to tell the story in podcast form? How did that become the medium for you?
0: Well, I started thinking about the podcast form when I left museum work. And one of the things I had tried to do as a museum curator was to think about the exhibition Or the display of art as a story told in space with three dimensional objects. So instead of words and characters, you had these art objects. And then when I didn't work in a museum anymore, I realized I was still really interested in telling stories, but I was now going to have to find a new form to do them. And I've always been a radio head. I grew up listening to the radio, I had one of those little circle transistor radios that like you know spun open like I was a very geeky radio kid and I also love to be read to and so the podcast form just sort of I I just sort of took to it like a fish to water because it had a lot of things in it that I already really enjoyed and luckily Pushkin approached me and asked me if I wanted to do this podcast. I think a lot of people are curious about stories in the art world, but the art world is so, we're very fortressed and kind of elitist and, and people don't know, they don't trust their way in. And so they asked if I would be willing to look at this story. And I have to say, I basically, I didn't even really think about it. If you know what I mean? I just said, yes, you know, I was so excited to do it. And I was excited to do it for two reasons. One is I knew if I did it, I would have to really think through Anna Mendiana's work. I couldn't be just a passive consumer of the work anymore. I knew I would have to read everything and look at everything and really think about what her work was doing and why it was important. And the other reason I said yes to the project was because I had been haunted by what happened to Anna for years. And I had actually had this experience where I went to Marfa with a bunch of friends, which Marfa's in Marfa, Texas. And it's this very legendary art world place where Donald Judd makes all these buildings filled with the art of his friends. It's like art for art's sake at its absolute height. And Carl Andre has a pavilion there filled with his poems. And I went with a bunch of girlfriends and one of where there were six of us and one of my friends refused to go in the building. And she was standing outside the building and she was practically shaking with anger. She was so pissed. She was pissed that the pavilion was there. She was pissed that the rest of us were going in the pavilion. She was, she was just furious. And her fury has haunted me for years and she's very much she's older than i am she's about 15 years older than i am so she was really in the art world during that moment she was just incensed that people were still people and by people i mean five women who identify as feminists were willing to go in and look at this work by carl andre and i so i knew if i took the podcast on not only would i have the luxury of really doing a deep dive on Anna Mendieta's work, but I'd have the harder ethical work of trying to figure out why I went in to look at those poems. Would I still go in to look at those poems? I would have to really just finally grapple with the Carl Andre problem.
1: I did give a little summary of the of the story at the beginning of the episode, but I just wanted maybe for you to remind the listeners here exactly what we think happened to Anna and also Carl's part in it. It's a big story and there is a lot of uh there's a lot of speculation, I guess, but there are some things that are known. So how does how is it that you understand what happened to her?
0: It's still, after this whole long podcast, is still a very difficult question for me to answer, which is sort of surprising. However, Anna Mendieta fell to her death from the 34th floor window of an apartment that belonged to Carl Andre in Greenwich Village. When the 911 call went in, it was su- the 911 operator sort of assumes it's a suicide. The police show up assuming it's a ju- that she's a jumper. And after talking with Carl Andre in the apartment, they begin to revise that opinion and he becomes a uh, a person of, of interest he he is ultimately um, indicted for second degree manslaughter. I think it's second degree manslaughter. I'm looking to louisa I've, I've lost my um my facts and my jet lag haze but he's he's basically tried for her death and he uh, is not found guilty, and everyone has to deal with the fact that he's not found guilty because the everything one knows about the trial suggests that he very, 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 very well may be guilty.
1: I was telling you about the different ways I was thinking about this after listening to the podcast. Is that it's all storytelling you know like you were saying earlier it's all about storytelling and and one of the things that really stood out to me and i think will really stand out to my listeners is the fact that we don't think about that but trials are all storytelling and a lot of it is what you leave out is the way that you tell the story and you equate that to like when you you're curating for a museum like if you have an artist that you're going to do a show for like what do you what do you leave in and what do you leave out and it tells the story of the art in a certain way and the artist in a certain way, the same way a trial does. I, I found that really fascinating. I was really thinking about that a lot after I, I heard you say that. I th- just think it's just brilliant a way to look at it, but it is all storytelling, and, and the big part of that is what we leave out, the evidence we leave out or things that aren't admissible or things that are you know, struck down by the judge or even what the witnesses can say, like we heard about in, in this case. Um, and what they can't say, and some of the things they couldn't say were very important to say, but not allowed. And so those are the things that are so frustrating in court cases, but we, if we look at it in the way that it's the defense and you know the prosecution trying to tell the story a certain way in order to influence people in, in a certain way, just like everything else. So what is it about in this a podcast that you felt like you had to leave out that you really wish you could have put into the story, but maybe it was just going down the side road because I I find myself doing that a lot as I'm, you know, writing scripts for each episode. Like this is really interesting, but maybe it's taking away from what I want to say. But I do find it so interesting. Was there anything like that you found while you were putting this together? Louisa,
0: I don't know, do you think we left anything on the cutting room floor that would have changed the the scope or the the version of the story that we told? I think the biggest thing that was left
2: on the cutting room floor that would be interesting to dive into more is just how many other stories there are like this. You know, I, there was another, there, we did interview someone about another artist who had a, a, a kind of similar, but not really like apples for apples comparison um, thing happened. And that, her, her take, this was a collector uh, who had to make the decision whether or not to include another person's work in in her collection. Just like there's so many stories of artists of all different kinds that people have to decide after they find out something about them or suspect something about them, what to do with their work or their love for their work. And I think that is something we touched on, but I think we could have told many more of those stories.
1: I wanted to ask you this, if you can share this without giving away any important spoilers in Death of an Artist, was there one thing that you learned about the story as you were researching it that maybe surprised you or shocked you or maybe something you weren't expecting or was there a certain um, interview you did that, that really gave you a, a different perspective of maybe the way you thought of this case?
0: I know that I personally have never gotten over or recovered from the fact that Carl Andre still lives in that apartment. I don't know why, but I can't get over that fact. And it's obviously a fact we learned very early on. Uh, and in some ways, it it just it just chills me to the bone. I, there's something profound in it that I don't understand no matter what you think about what happened that night, I cannot imagine living in that apartment. And so just at the level of how people are really different and how there is something profoundly unknowable about another person, that really sticks with me a great deal. I don't know. What about you, Louisa? I
2: think the thing that, was really impactful for me was to talk to artists who love Ana Mendieta's work and see how deeply they were affected by her work and by the story of her death and and not just in like a this artist influences my work but in a very personal way that uh, Ana was for them both an individual person and a wonderful artist, but also a representation of all of these feelings of of rage and um, injustice. So that, to me, I think was was really the biggest, maybe not a surprise, but the deepest sort of impact to me. But I did I did get to see Helen. You sort of feel surprised over and over again each time we kind of like, and we we knew sort of the basic facts, you know, but it was interesting how even like revisiting re those basic facts over and over again is still like hard to believe that some of the things that happened, happened the way they did.
0: It's true. I never kind of settled into how twisted and messed up the story was. I always was kind of electric in my in my sense of injustice.
1: The last thing I just wanted to say really quick is that you got to spend some time with, with Carl Andre, right? You actually went to that building. Is that
0: correct? Well, because Louise is a journalist, we went to the building because One of the things that's interesting, I think, about the podcast, when I try to step back and look at it, you know, a little more objectively, is that it's made by two people who have very different methods. Who were taught very different methods of storytelling. So we don't tell art history stories the way journalists tell stories, and journalists don't tell stories the way art historians tell stories. So we we doorstepped. Carl Andre's building, but we did not spend any time with him. Uh, He did not respond to any of our entreaties.
1: Where can people find the podcast? How can they listen? And are all the episodes available now?
0: The first episode drops on September 23rd, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you become a member of Pushkin Plus, then you can listen to all six episodes in one a bingeable fell swoop. Otherwise they're going to drop one a week uh, starting on September 23rd for six weeks.
1: And I would say that binging it is the best way because that's what I did <laughs> this weekend. So uh, so yeah, if you, if you can if you can do that, it, that sounds like a great option to me. Is there any last things you wanted to say? I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the story with us and letting
0: our, our listeners know about the podcast. No, I want to thank you for having us. And I just want to give a shout out really to Anna Mandieta's work because the question that Ana work asks us again and again is uh, what are we going to do if we are a witness or a bystander to violence and I think that her question is a really important question for all of us to be thinking about all the time but particularly at this moment where there's a the world is an extremely violent place and people are doing really behaving very badly at the moment across a lot of fronts. And so it's really a good thing to think about what, what is your role when you are a witness to violence? That's a great point. A very great point, especially
1: for a listeners of my podcast, because that's something that we definitely encounter a a lot in these stories, you know, that somebody could have maybe said something, things may, may have changed. We don't know for sure, but sometimes that's just saying something or asking a question
0: can be helpful.
1: So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it.
0: Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre were a textbook example of Opposites Attract. Two artists a white man from New England who became famous in the 1960s for his minimalist sculptures and a Cuban woman who had been forced from her homeland and discovered radical art in the middle of Iowa in the 1970s in the early hours of September 8, 1985 Anna fell from the 34th floor of Carl's New York apartment Anna's untimely death and the trial that followed split the art world in two There were those who couldn't believe an artistic genius was capable of that kind of violence. And there were those who blamed Carl for Anna's death. Could I continue to love both Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre's work? It felt like the only way to answer that question was by asking another what really happened to Anna Mendieta? I'm Helen Molesworth from Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment. This is Death of an Artist, the story of two people who pushed the boundaries of art and changed the trajectory of art history. It could have been a love story, but instead, it's a tragedy. Listen to Death of an Artist wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus, and you can listen to the whole season right now, ad-free. Sign up on the Death of an Artist page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm.
1: Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe and listen to Death of an Artist on Apple Podcasts, Pushkin Plus, or wherever you listen to podcasts.